Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the debate, How Can We Create a New Industrial Revolution, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival on Sunday the 3rd of November 2019. Our partners for the debate are the City of London Corporation. Good afternoon everybody. My name is Rob Killick and I'm going to be chairing this session which is called How Can We Create a New Industrial Revolution? We have a very good lineup of speakers. On my immediate left is Lord Andrew Donis, a Labour peer, uh, founding chairman of the National Infrastructure Commission, the author of Saving Britain, How We Must Change to Prosper in Europe, and a proponent uh, and uh, mover and shaker of HS2 rail line. To his left is Gerard Grech, who is the chief executive of Tech Nation, which is an accelerator for technical startups in the UK and also a board member of this uh, building that we're in, the Barbican. On my far right is Kevin McCullough, who is the founder of Plan, which is a product experience consultancy. He is an innovation strategist and a writer. And on my immediate right, Hilary Salt, who is an actuary and the founder of the first actuarial partnership. This is a very, very big subject, and it incorporates lots of very difficult and complicated um, and interrelated issues. Um, The assumption behind the title is that we want to create a new industrial revolution, and one of the problems, I think, in this area is that there is a growing sentiment in society that a new industrial revolution is not a terribly good idea. And there's a a sense that industry and progress is problematic. So that's a a problem that we uh, will come up against in this area. I think we also would like to look at what the opportunities are, what we think the opportunities are for a new industrial revolution, and also, very importantly, what the barriers are. Uh, I think in that sense we also should be looking at the role of the state and I hope that Andrew will have something interesting to say about that because that's really his big area Uh, and anything else that the speakers uh, wish to cover or anything else that you in the audience would like to raise after they have spoken they're going to talk for five to seven minutes at which point I will give them a yellow card although it's actually a white card because the yellow card's gone missing and then I'll raise this one and they have to stop in mid-flow at that point. So I hope that they will uh, be self-disciplined and not uh, require intervention from me. Just one point. um, On Brexit, uh, there are Remainers in this audience who will think that all of our problems are caused by that, and there are Leavers who think that none of our problems are caused by that. I'd be quite grateful if we didn't actually talk about it in the course of this discussion because it's likely to lead us off into a different place. So let's assume that we're going to disagree on that and um, deal with the other main issues covered by the subject. First of all, Lord Adonis. Thanks very much. Um, well, I've only got five minutes, so I, I'll speak in, a, as, as it were, a succession of tweets, which is how I tend to operate these days anyway. So. That makes some sense. Firstly, you can't ignore Brexit. We will not have a serious industrial future as a country if we gauge you Brexit. It's as simple as that. We will spend the next 10 to 15 years 
arguing about our place in Europe, our trade uh, regime, would have a massive crisis of inward investment, all of those things. So the first thing you should do if you want a serious industrial policy for the country is not to Brexit. The second thing you should do in terms of existing policy is continue with existing policy that is moving towards serious industrial investment, of which serious infrastructure investment is, uh, is the most significant. That both those that are underway, you mentioned HS2, which we should clearly complete. It's a third built or invested in at the moment. It needs to go through to uh, Leeds, Sheffield, and then act as the, the infrastructure transport spine that will link the North and uh, the Midlands, the South and Scotland of this country. But also, uh, digital infrastructure is hugely important, and we have a substandard digital infrastructure as a country at the moment. We're well behind international best practice in terms of uh, broadband and super and ultra-fast broadband. We have deplorable 4G coverage, which is a huge problem in terms of, um, of leveraging our, um, uh, our entrepreneurial and business uh, capacity, and uh, we need to be an aunt at the moment at the forefront of planning for 5G. So all of that I, I take as, as given, that the things which we're doing which are bad, we should stop doing, the things that we're doing which are good, we should accelerate, which is by and large the golden rule of uh, public policy, which we're not actually following as a country at all well at the moment. In terms of new things we should do, or... Uh, significant developments of policy at the moment. There are just four I would highlight, and I'll, I'll try and keep them to a minute each. Firstly, we need an apprenticeship revolution. We have a semi-skilled workforce uh, in this country, which is a, a, a very poor basis on, on which to build a serious, high-skilled industrial future. We have good universities, and I'll come back to those in a moment, and we have a fairly highly skilled graduate workforce. But graduates, those on a graduate course, are still barely half of those who are going through the cohort. The other half probably have a worse deal than in any other advanced industrial nation. What we need, to keep it simple, because I've always believed that public policy, is, as a senior Chinese official once put it to me when he said to me when I was transport secretary, I was looking at their high-speed rail system in Beijing, because China now has more high-speed rail than the rest of the world put together. You need to understand, Lord Adonis, that in this country, R&D stands for rob and duplicate. And there is almost no good policy which is not possible to rob and duplicate. The trick is to identify the one and then copy it. What Britain needs is Germany's apprenticeship system. It's very simple. It's not complicated. Just as uh, we've developed a world-class uh, university system, uh, largely homegrown, actually, because we, we started off with, uh, with good uh, elite universities in the first place, but then we largely copied Germany's Fachhochschule, uh, which is their polytechnic type technical colleges when we created our polytechnics in the 60s. Now we need to do the same with their apprenticeship system and that needs to, to, to progressively embrace in the public and the private sectors the 50% who don't go on to university at the moment who by and large get a hit and miss set of training and career opportunities and have on average about a quarter as much invested in them and spent on them by the state as people who go to university. That's big priority number one. Big priority number two, we should be at the forefront of the green industrial revolution, which means green energy technology, which we're moderately good at but need to become a great deal better at. So, for example, it's ludicrous that we still have a we now have a moratorium on, on shore wind farms when large parts of the country would willingly have them as a means of industrial development and could boost hugely our industrial pot potential. But it needs to be true of the whole panoply of, uh, of green technologies. The, they're clearly going to come. We are moving to a low or zero carbon future. We have huge potential to be leading it because we're an island with, with abundant uh, 
uh, green resources, um, we should be leading that. The third is we should be strengthening and not weakening our universities. There is going to be no advanced industrial country in the future that does, does not have more than an average share of good universities. We start off with good ones, and we've made three huge policy changes in the last generation which have boosted our standing. We deregulated fees for international students, which made us second only to the United States in terms of a, a focus and magnet for international talent. We deregulated home fees, which enabled us to invest in our universities in a way that uh, isn't true of the rest of continental Europe. We need to get the balance right. I think fees, as it happens, are too high at the moment, but having a private fee income has been liberating and crucial for our university system, and the state has been fairly good at investing in big science, and that's been true uh, of, um, of, uh, of, of, despite austerity and changes of government, where, thanks to David Willits and George Osborne, in no small part, we did maintain science investment. We need to do more of all of those things in terms of investment, more of all of them, but again, not Brexiting would help enormously because otherwise we're going to have a net loss of international students and international talent. The third uh, thing uh, uh, we need to do, uh, which is uh, absolutely uh, crucial to, um, uh, so the fourth thing we need to do to take all this forward decisively, is to, is to, to do what Mariana Mazzucato says in her brilliant book, The Entrepreneurial State, and that is be, be proud of an, an active, interventionist, high-spending state and do it well, rather than in a neoliberal way make excuses for the fact that we have a big state even where it does exist, as, as for example in defence, which has been the bedrock of, of high-tech investment in the US. One chapter of Matt's, uh, Mariana's book, which is utterly brilliant, is her account of the rise of Apple, which everybody thinks is a great, including Apple itself, as a great triumph of the private sector, but is largely on the back of DARPA and huge federal investment in defence in the US. So we should be proud We should be proud of the investment which we're already making and leverage it. But in sectors where we uh, have got poor levels of, in, of investment at the moment, we need to have a much stronger and entrepreneurial state. And the area where nobody but the state can invest, which is in the skills of the young, particularly those of school age, who unless they have very wealthy parents who can send them to private schools, can't invest, we need a much more active, much higher spending and much more entrepreneurial state. If we do all those things, I think we'll have a bright industrial future. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, keep, uh, we'll applaud the, all the speakers together at the end uh, for the sake of uh, time. So second is Hilary Salt. Thank you. So <clears throat> I want to make three points. Uh, first point, the problem is not a lack of capital. Uh, second point, the problem is productivity. And third point, <clears throat> we need to rethink the role of the state. And I, I agree with some of the things that Andrew's just said. So first of all, on the problem not being a lack, lack of capital. Whenever you, when you read commentators talking about a new industrial revolution, they, they, they often seem to start from this idea that you need to create a pool of assets, some, some form of investment bank, for example. Now, in the field that, where I work, that of pensions, that there are billions of pounds sloshing around ready for investment, but most of that money isn't going into productive investment. So as an example, the, the percentage of assets in defined benefit schemes that are invested in equities, uh, growth assets, you know, U UK companies and, and global companies, uh, has fallen from 80% in 1989 to below 30% now. Uh, and that very low allocation to equities in the current climate is really startling because what it means is that schemes are buying bonds which lock them into a negative real rate of return. So for every million pounds they invest now, they'll get less than... Uh, a million pounds in real terms when that bond is repaid. 
And because these schemes hold a, an awful lot of money, about £1.7 trillion in assets, um, their turning away from productive investments makes a, a real difference. Uh, 20 years ago, pension funds owned about a quarter of the UK equity market. It's now below 3%. And I think the most important driver behind that change is a very different attitude to risk. Uh, and that's, that's from different players, from companies, from pension schemes, uh, and from government. Um, looking at things from the other side, many businesses don't need <coughs> external investments because they've got huge cash piles themselves. Uh, so with capital so easily available, why aren't businesses investing? And businesses set a, a hurdle rate for investment, the rate of return they need to make to make a project viable. And you'd think that with no need to pay high interest rate charges, you'd expect those hurdle rates to fall and more investment rates rate to come, more investment to come through. But, but they're not falling there. They're remaining stubbornly high. And again, I would put that part down to a large part uh, to the idea of uh, people being un unwilling uh, to take risks. It's far easier to kind of maximise shareholder value uh, by using that capital to buy back shares and push up the price of those shares uh, than to take the risks associated with long-term research and development or building a new plant or a new business innovation. And there's another reason why having loads of capital swishing around hasn't helped investments. Uh, investment with loads of cheap and flexible labour around. It's really easy to just throw labour at a problem rather than invest in the automation that would increase productivity. So the problem is productivity. Uh, you probably saw the ONS figures uh, released earlier this month that showed productivity uh, actually falling after previously flatlining. I say that's emphatically not a new problem. Uh, productivity in the UK has been stagnant for decades, including before the 2008 crash, and I think back, back uh, to, the, to the 1980s. We've got the lowest productivity now of, the, of all the G7 countries. Now, that productivity puzzle is, is kind of really widely recognised. I think there's political... Uh, consensus around the need to do something about it, uh, but that progress seems really elusive. So why is that? Um, I think Andy Haldane, the, the chief economist at the Bank of England, put his finger on it when he said, uh, the UK's international productivity gap is to a large degree a long tail problem. And what he meant by that is that we've got a huge legacy of unproductive, just about managing businesses. Uh, a far greater proportion than our, our European competitors. And we need to clear out a lot of those businesses. It's, that's very unpopular to say, uh, but it's true. There are businesses that are generally very debt-laden, uh, outdated machinery and processes. So why is it so important to clear out those zombie companies? Uh, I actually prefer the term vampire to zombie because I think they do kind of suck the blood out of the rest of the economy. And they do that by hammering down people's expectations of work, uh, they eat up the time of consultants who are devising new borrowing structures to keep them afloat. And they endlessly swap bits of paper. Uh, there's a policy and a risk register for absolutely everything. And they do, of course, look after their own. Don't expect as an upcoming business to get any work from them unless you can match their roster uh, of quality marks and policies. And I think we also need to address that devaluing of labour. I, I always like the example Paul Mason uses. He says, you know, when we were kids, a car wash was a machine, uh, and now it's five guys with rugs. Um, we have 20,000 hand car washes in the UK. I think I passed most of them on my way to work, to be honest. Um, and that kind of process of reverse industrialisation is seen in lots and lots of low-skill, low-paid jobs, where you have the fetishisation of words like handmade, home-cooked and craft. 
Um, all that's only possible because Labour is cheap, plentiful and doesn't have the kind of power that it once expressed through the trade unions. And yes, we have record levels of employment, but I think m most of that is, a lot of that is in made-up jobs. Um, uh, I, I don't know if anybody's read the, the, don't like the title, but the, the bullshit jobs. You know, there are so many of those uh, people swapping bits of paper and not being productive. So what do we need uh, government to do? Um, a little wary strain into policy recommendations at the Battle of Ideas, especially in the throes of a, a general election. But I think there are some things that, that I would say. Um, we do need to, I agree, we need to recognise better the potential and past practice of state intervention. Uh, the state as the investor of first resource, re resort in wave after wave of technical intervention. I think that role has to be in partnership with both the universities and large and small businesses and it also needs to be regionally based uh, and that research that the uh, work in the universities I think should be focused not just on technologies close to market but also on kind of blue sky research where uh, there might be uh, a decade's wait before anything productive comes out of it. Second I think the state should be prepared to step in and help to clear out those vampire businesses that means withdrawing long-term support uh, stopping overt and covert subsidisation uh, and resisting demands to fail out uh, failing businesses. Again, politically hard to do, but necessary. But I think the state has to be prepared to step in uh, and help support, retrain, skill up and relocate workers. And I think government also needs to look at legal issues like patents, today more often used to stifle innovation than encourage it, regulation and procurement policies to ensure they facilitate the growth of innovative business practices. I even think there's a role for mandated collective bargaining with a progressive agenda around training, including apprenticeships and, and, and career progression. And finally, I think government needs to take back responsibility for some of the work it's contracted out. Controversially, I think that includes things like setting interest rates uh, and justice. And of course, outside of government, I think we all need to create a society that's less scared of the future, has more belief in human, a human agency and our ability to change the world, and is more prepared to take the risk needed to create the economy we all need. Thank, Thank you. you. Gerard. No clapping. <laughs> all jazz hands. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Gerard. Uh, I'm Chief Executive of TechNation. We are a UK network for ambitious tech entrepreneurs in here. Um, we've worked with hundreds and hundreds of companies uh, in AI, machine learning, doing amazing things. So I'll give it sort of a perspective from the companies that I work with. Um, so I'll start by saying that there are probably four key points to focus on on the, industri the fourth industrial revolution. I don't think we're creating it. It's, I think it's already arrived. Um, and by that, I mean that by the companies that I see right across the country, from Bristol to Edinburgh to, to Belfast, it's really, really impressive what, what I'm getting to see. So the first driver is talent, and Andrew touched on it earlier. But when we look at talent and the creative talent that we have in this country, we look at schools and what we're teaching our children about the future, and clearly a lot of the jobs that will be in the future won't exist today. So how do you prepare schools to actually teach children to do jobs that don't yet exist. So rather than teaching perhaps children to do, to do something, we should teach them to do anything. And that's always a tough question. Secondly, colleges for, for, uh, for further education, uh, universities, how should they deal with school leavers, um, making sure that they have a far, strong a far stronger grounding in technology and being able to embrace technology? Um, 
Universities, again, Andrew touched on this, universities do a great job uh, in teaching our uh, school leavers, but they need to do a better job of making sure that there are entrepreneurial spaces where people can test and experiment, and especially PhD students that then turn their research into a company of sorts that then goes on to create jobs. And I think on that point, I think universities have to do a better job of dealing with patents. And again, that was also touched on by a colleague of mine. Today, universities take up to 50% of a company's patent from someone. That is not going to be a good business for the person running the company and the team that's going to run the company, let alone the investor. So I think uh, how universities look at patents and, 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 and value creation needs to perhaps be looked at very carefully. Um, the notion of lifelong learning models, how do we get people to think about uh, themselves and how they learn as change is a constant? Um, we are probably experiencing the lowest rate of change. It's only going to get faster and faster. Uh, it took a long time for the telephone to get adopted around the world. It took Instagram, I don't know, like a year to get 100 million users. That's just a fact, and that's just not going to slow down. How people adopt technology is just going to get faster and faster. And I think our, our uh, attitude towards change perhaps needs to be dealt with in how we actually learn. Um, I spend a lot of time not only with companies that are going from two people one day to 200 people in two years, but also watching how companies themselves have to learn, because they're not only competing with UK-based companies, but they're competing with Chinese companies and American companies that are very good at, perhaps, as, as Andrew said, uh, replicate and duplicate. Um, or actually, no, is it Robin duplicate? That's right. Uh, so dealing with change, and we run programs that transform CEOs and their leadership teams because the speed of change is so... Uh, so fast, and we've had CEOs step down at the end of our programs because they just know that they're not the scaling type CEO that takes a company from dozens of people to hundreds of people in two years. The emotional state of the person, the leadership team, is so important. And I come back to the first point about how do you develop talent that can really scale companies. Um, visas, we'll obviously touch on that just because of the, the, the situation where the, the growth of this industry is, is, is so fast that you need people, you need homegrown talent, but you obviously need experts. You need machine learning experts from China, Singapore, Russia, wherever it's from, but you need that talent here in order to grow an industrial revolution in this country. Number two is capital, and capital, we look at capital from early stage investment through angel investors that have made money in the past that are backing people. They're not backing necessarily ideas at that point, but they're backing people who are really passionate about changing the world. Um, so you have angel investors and making sure that the conditions for them to invest and get a return on their investment is ripe. Then you have early stage investment, and then you have growth capital. That's why the, National, the, the uh, British Business Bank was created, to make sure that we were able to compete with the Americans and the Chinese who have a lot of growth capital. I think this was also touched on by one of, our, uh, one of my colleagues on the, on the panel, is pensions. How do we make sure that pension funds actually back um, high-risk startups and scale-ups? Uh, we need that. Uh, even if it's a small amount, we need to make sure that pension funds are not too risk-averse, because if you're not funding the next generation of entrepreneurs, then don't expect high returns. 
Um, also, debt and loan. There's a lot more. Uh, there are a lot more products available now to companies in how they actually look at their financing options. And there's, um, I would say that banks are some banks that are more niche now. But Silicon Valley Bank is one that's come from the Silicon from, from from the Bay Area. And actually, the way they kind of support companies is very different to traditional banks, which is a good thing. Number three is infrastructure and ecosystems. Yes, we definitely need strong broadband, and definitely we need fast broadband, for sure. Uh, two office spaces, um, how companies, uh, how their employees work within companies is changing. The future of work has been talked about a lot. I'm sure, actually, today. One minute, Gerald. Thank you. Uh, uh, and, and, and networks, uh, people co uh, connecting people through spaces and having a better rail infrastructure so that people don't treat uh, a trip to Cambridge like a pilgrimage. Uh, if you look at the Bay Area, it takes two hours to go from South San Francisco to the south of the Bay Area. Uh, but here, somehow or other, two hours seems like a long time. And then finally, I would say political leadership um, uh, and, and um, an evolution of how we deal with our uh, business environments, so regulators institutions that are looking to the future. The Open Data Institute is one of the first Open Data Institute. Was, the UK was one of the first countries to actually have the Open Data Institute. Uh, also one of the first countries to have a center for data ethics and innovation. These are new technologies that are presenting us with new solutions, but also new problems that we need to challenge ourselves and, and deal with. So I would say that the fourth industrial Last revolution sentence. has arrived, and we welcome it with open arms. Thank you. Kevin. Okay, so uh, for me, the reason why we need a new industrial revolution is to raise stagnant living standards. That, that's for me, is the reason why I want it. And, and I like the, the quote from Paul Krugman when he, when he talks about productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it's pretty much everything. And, and it's that low productivity growth, low economic growth, low wage growth, which is what we've got to solve. Now, when we, when we think about what... Uh, what we're looking for for a new industrial revolution. I think there's three things we need to look for. One, a cluster of interconnected and re self-reinforcing technologies um, that impact a number of different sectors, not just one, and that they transform uh, th th those, those sectors in, in large um, uh, productivity boosts, and also, in, t in turn, it transforms society. So, to take the first industrial revolution, that the, the, the technologies there were about moving from hand and horsepower to water and steam. The, the, um, the industries were textiles and, say, transportation, railways and what have you. And that the social impact there was, um, you know, the first um, sustained raise in living standards in history. Up until then, it was just being flat, flatlined. Um, you also had urbanisation, the creation of an urban working class, and um, you know, huge transformations. I won't go through all the different re revolutions, but if we go to the third revolution, um, often called the digital revolution, uh, began, began in the 50s, 60s, and that was a, a chain of technologies, computing, mobile phones, uh, web, social media, what have you. Um, that hasn't yet delivered the, the, the productivity boost that you'd expect from an industrial revolution, and I think we're still working out what the, the social impact of, of is. Um, that takes us to the so-called um, fourth industrial revolution that was m just mentioned. 
Um, for me, that's a pretty shaky idea. Um, that's that's that the cluster of technologies that are mentioned there are things like AI, Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, blockchain, 3D printing, biotechnology. I mean, to begin with, anyone who mentions 3D printing as a as a transformative technology is clutching at straws. Seriously, um, the blockchain, the the, the jury is seriously out on that. Uh, autonomous vehicles aren't going to happen in a, a big way for another two decades. So I think the only thing of substance there is that collection of technologies around AI, so AI, big data, um, cloud computing, 5G, Internet of Things. However, and I think that has got the potential to provide a productivity boost, but that, that is a continuation of the third industrial revolution, and it will probably be the part of that third industrial revolution which will finally deliver the um, the productivity boost. So that isn't a new industrial revolution. The, 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 what, what we need to look for, for for a real industrial revolution is the creation of new industries. And I just want to suggest three that we might want to focus on. One is clean and bountiful and cheap um, energy. So whether that comes from um, mass storage of um, uh, electricity from the likes of wind farms, whether it's small modular nuclear reactors, hydrogen, energy, or even nuclear fusion. Um, we need a Manhattan Project-style effort um, to, to really um, finish that, that, that R&D project. Um, there's ideas out there that uh, Andrew McAfee, uh, new book, less from, uh, More From Less, um, suggests that there should be a pooling of international um, IP on, on nuclear energy and a big international collaboration to, to develop... Um, scalable and reliable um, nuclear power stations. Um, on a more prosaic scale, if we want to electrify transportation, with our, our electric grid needs a major upgrade. We can't manage it with our, our current grid. Um, but I don't hear a lot about that. I hear about wind, wind farms and insulating a loft. That, that, that's, that's seen as political vision these days. Uh, another industry would be hypersonic flight. Um, there's a, there's a lot of um, airline flight is, is um, a big target for the degrowthers <laughs> these days. And to be honest, in the short term, I think flight is a good use of hydrocarbons. I think it's a lot easier to decarbonize other parts of the economy. So I, I, I think that's a fairly valuable use of hydrocarbons. But in the longer term, um, we need technologies like the, um, the Oxford-based reaction engines company who, who have just done a really important recent test of their Sabre jet rocket engine that, could, um, that can fly at Mach 5, which is tw over twice the speed of Concorde, get, get you to New York in two hours, can, um, can travel in the atmosphere and in space, um, runs on hydrogen fuel. That's the sort of thing that we should be looking at. Um, and third is mass affordable housing. Again, the, f the first two are examples, we do need more R&D. Um, we know how to make um, factory-built houses. That's not, that's not rocket science at all. What we need is leadership. We, we need the political will to change the planning system, to be able to um, issue um, mass planning applications, um, and also uh, deregulate the green belt and face down the NIMBYs in the green belt. Um, so that's what I think we need. I think, the, uh, to, to, to conclude, I think the, the barriers to progress are not... Um, uh, that we haven't got the funds, it's not that we haven't got the, uh, the, the technologies, although we still do need to do more R&D. 
I think the fundamental um, problem is a lack of belief that it should even happen in the first place, uh, which leads to a lack of vision to actually imagine what, that, what those um, positive minute. futures could look like, the political will to clear out the barriers and drive things forward, and then that, that explains why people aren't investing. Um, if you have those other things in place, we'll have the investment. So I'll just, um, I'll just finish by saying that I think it's cultural caution and cultural pessimism that is the problem. And um, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Steven Pinker, is that intellectuals hate progress, and intellectuals who call themselves progressive really hate progress. And it's the, it's the so-called progressives that are our biggest problem. Thank you very much. Big hand for everybody. Uh, first, before I uh, take uh, anything from the audience, is there anything that any of you speakers would like to come back on any of the other speakers, on anything that they said that you agree with, disagree with, particularly? If not, I'm happy to... All right. Um, there, there's, a, there's a very strong um, area of agreement, um, of areas of agreement in, in what the speakers have said. And one thing that has, is very, um, that has come up again and again from all the different speakers is the role of the state in, in facilitating um, these, these changes and uh, improvements and, and, uh, and so on. And I wondered if, um, and perhaps the speakers would like to come back on this first, if not, I'll take people from the audience. We, we seem to have a very short-termist political culture at the moment, particularly short-termist. In fact, we've, you know, we've had three prime ministers in the last four years, which I don't, can't remember if that's ever happened in, this uh, in the last century and this century before even. Um, and there is also a lot of instability within the civil service. So I'm, I'd be interested to know why we think that the, the political class and the civil servants are capable in their current, um, as currently set up uh, are capable of making these changes, or perhaps they aren't, and perhaps something else has to happen. So anyway, I'll take some, some questions from, or points from the audience. Yes, over here. You. Um, yeah, I'll only mention it in terms of it relates to what I'm going to say. And I work now for a 3D printing company in uh, wherever. <laughs> I'm, I'm very skeptical of it myself, but I went there, and I, there is, I think there are glimmers of light insofar as it's definitely worth exploring as a kind of second generation, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But I do think the key is actually the materials tied to digital rather than the actual way everything's stuck together. But my real point for mentioning it is this is a small to medium-sized enterprise, as it were, in Peterborough. Existing company, quite okay financially, stumbled across a new way of doing 3D printing, but it's operating in a sea of crap. You know, it's trying to um, have a label on it, you know, to say it's made in Britain. It sends out for components and stuff like that. They come back, they're just absolutely appalling. You know, they, they've just got to go off to uh, start ordering stuff in China or whatever. There really is an appalling set of, you know, just rubbish. It's just operating. And tied into that, there's this idea of there's a shortage of engineers in the UK. You know, I've, I've largely worked in the engineering sector. Partly true, but there's also good engineers who are being held back are sitting, again, in rubbish companies. They're doing good jobs in rubbish companies. You know, so I, I, I have got... I do, I'd, I'd like to know how it works, but I do like this idea of somehow 
um, these SMEs, which to me have been, uh, what's the word? They've been encouraged, um, they've been um, made to feel good by the government, civil servants, to tie into to your point. I do wonder sometimes if civil servants and the government actually go to visit the rubbish companies. They're all happy to go to the ones that are really good, innovative, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But they should be going to the real rubbish ones, maybe even having a score of how good is this company or whatever, somehow to pick it out. So I think there is a disconnect there. And as I say, this is Peterborough, you know. Um, so, yeah, so, so ultimately... I do think that, that, that there should be some kind of either active crisis or some other crisis to, to, to stop this, to clear out, to separate out the good SMEs from the bad SMEs. Okay. okay? All right, thank you. Right at the back. Um, thank you. Uh, Two-part question. Uh, um, one about pensions, two about the innovators who start companies. So pensions, I wasn't aware that there was a pensions issue. So is there a country, America, Germany, otherwise, who is leading the way in terms of um, coercing or encouraging their pension funds to invest more so in startups or in growth companies. I think that would be interesting. Or is it just a sort of pipe dream that um, 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 you can't really force them because it's, it's, it's um, their money after all for them to decide what they want to do. And secondly, in terms of uh, the innovators who will kickstart or do kickstart companies, so a two-part question, one about um, um, talent from the UK and two about talent from overseas. In terms of the UK, we've heard lots about universities and how they're potentially failing, gone too much towards, an, you know, to, towards a market economy. So if there's one thing you would want to change in British universities, what is that uh, one thing? Secondly, in terms of um, Brexit and what that will or won't mean towards people coming from over overseas, engineers and otherwise, to work in the UK, as opposed to work in Canada or Australia or elsewhere, do you think that's a fundamental um, problem that Britain will face? Or do you think commentators who say it's a problem are um, speaking nonsense? A uh, gentleman with his uh, programme in his hand. Hi, um, my name's Julian Newton, and my organisation's Grand Northern. And I consider myself to be a budding engineering entrepreneur for the last sort of, two years. But I'm, I'm getting zero cooperation from the government in any way. It's, it's a bureaucratic minefield. It really is. And there's no kind of... Oh, you will, you'll, they come out with these sort of like so-called like new ideas of saying, oh, put, put, uh, put in for this bit of funding. But it doesn't relate to what I'm doing. Why don't they have a fresh call for ideas every month and say, come on, guys, come with your ideas, not what we prescribe to you. Give us an idea and we will look at it. You know, that... It's not working at the moment. I mean, for example, we want to build super eco ships. Absolutely no cooperation. There's a, sh a shipyard in Appledore in Devon. It, it's got a wonderful resource, and we're trying to reopen that shipyard. Harland and Wolf. It could be. It's the it's the biggest dry dock in the world. It's got the biggest two cranes in the world for for building great ships. And we're on the cusp of this industrial revolution where we can have these new super eco ships. And then you remember when you used to go by Concord to New York and you come back on a ship? Why not re-engine Concord with your Sabre engine? You know, that, that, was, the best, that was the most beautiful aircraft ever designed. And, and it's still there. We still have the designs for it. It's just that the engine technology at the time was poor. We used a, a, an engine which was designed in the 50s. It was, it was highly inefficient. But now with this, this new engine, 
you know, the world is, you know, you could go to, 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 to New York on the new Concorde and come back on a super eco ship. Happy days, but we need that kind of encouragement. Uh, yes, the glasses here. I'm Robert Fig. I'm involved in uh, commodity risk in heavy industry, m mining and uh, industrial. Um, two of the areas that I felt have been um, mismanaged uh, significantly by, ma by government have been um, regulation of the city um, of London has been incredibly heavily ha heavy-handed um, since the crash of 2008. Obviously, they were trying to stop uh, uh, the need for quantitative easing, but the multitude of uh, uh, laws that exist from MIFID through to Dodd-Frank to MIFIA to um, Basel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 um, have, in fact, um, been a massive uh, restraint on um, the City of London, which I think is one of uh, Britain's most productive areas. And I think that that um, should, you know, obviously be, be looked at significantly. The other area, which is uh, basically um, the failure of uh, government to uh, train senior management in, in um, how, how to uh, take industry forward. Um, you know, I, I, I spoke at a conference recently where everybody was talking about dig digitalization, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, drone technology in heavy industry. Um, but, you know, um, try and introduce a paperless office and people have a nervous breakdown uh, about trying to, uh, you know, implement uh, new ideas. So there is a huge gap between... Um, what is out there in terms of technology and te technological change and the ability of people to uh, implement some of these technologies. Thank you. Uh, gentleman in the blue shirt. I, I hope it's blue. I'm colorblind. It's great. <laughs> Somebody uh, should fix that problem, by the way. It's been a long time. Yeah, hi. I just... Um, I, I just, just uh, I really dislike the, uh, the concept productivity. I think what's important in an economy is that you, de develop, you deliver surplus and you direct that surplus to the, in the most efficient ways. And we've heard you know, examples, and everybody's talking about examples, where you know, the, the, the surplus is not being directed towards increasing our capabilities or into new technology. The reason I don't, don't like productivity as, as a concept is that it doesn't measure what you want it to measure because it only measures the people in work, it doesn't measure the people out of work. So if you compare Britain and France, uh, France has got a far better productivity, huge unemployment, and an even bigger, if you add in the disguised unemployment they've got in the four-year degrees and all the rest of it, and, and a huge state that's bigger than the UK. So it, even though its productivity is higher, the actual surplus it's got to invest is less. So I think it, it's not that I don't, I, I think you're, you're, you're asking the right question, you're just using the wrong measure. If, and if, you, if, you, if you're going to focus on productivity, you aren't necessarily going to deliver what we need, which is additional surplus directed more effectively. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, there's one more down here. Uh, after that, I will uh, let the speakers come back on some of the points. So not all of the points, but some of them. Yep. 
We spent a lot of time uh, blaming government for not doing enough to actually stimulate the economy. And given my concern in the current debacle over Brexit, that we might get an election where we don't get a strong majority and that governments may continue to stagnate uh, for quite some time. My question to the panel is, what can we do besides relying on government to uh, maybe at a more grassroots level or maybe to encourage financial institutions to invest without government intervention to really kickstart this fourth industrial revolution? What can okay. we do at a grassroots level or as an alternative to government while we're waiting for government to sort itself out? Good question. Anybody on the panel want to come back on any of these points? Yes. Kevin? Yeah, I'll come back on the what, what's the one thing you would like to see done in universities. Um, I guess my thought there would be um, probably the government setting up something like a, a Manhattan project for around, say, energy um, and bringing together multiple universities, multiple departments, uh, multiple companies like Rolls-Royce or British Aerospace or what have you, um, with a really clear goal. Um, an ambitious goal and you know, for, forge the, 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 the university departments, research departments and R&D departments within industry on a, a common goal. Um, can I say something on pensions? Oh, yeah, go on. Yeah, so, um, uh, I'm really interested in the growth area in pensions now is in auto-enrollment schemes. Those are schemes you, you might well have been auto-enrolled into uh, with your employer, largely defined contribution schemes, about 30 million employees in these now. Um, and there's about £500 billion in those. Um, and those could actually form the basis of a new beverage. And if you had a chance in your, uh, your auto-enrollment pension to choose the, you know, Rebuild Britain Fund, uh, you know, I think that is something that, that we could do, uh, you know, that, that, that would, uh, would be part of the solution. Just on, the, on government, the role of government, I, I do think that government is more likely to be a problem than a solution at the moment in the short term. So, you know, uh, you can talk to them about your eco-ships, but have you done a training course in modern slavery? And where's your gender pay gap stats? You know, that's the, that's the response you get from government. And they, they, they focus on entirely the wrong problem, uh, including in the city, where, you know, they, they see the problem as being too much risk in the city whereas actually I think the real problem is there's nowhere near enough risk and um, you know uh, investment in the future being taken Andrew. Just a, a footnote to that uh, interesting discussion on pensions the big problem we have in pensions is that though we have a large pool of potential investments in pensions we have a very very large number of, of separate pension schemes and we don't have much coordination between them and there's not much there's not much strategic uh, so there's not much strategic direction in pension investment. When I was chair of the National Infrastructure Commission, I was struck by how effective the Canadians are in, pen in, in their pension investment strategy because they have a few very large pension schemes which aggregate, like the Canadian teachers, who played a very big part in infrastructure investment internationally. We have our pool of private pensions is much, much larger. But just, for example, in, in the local government sector alone, I think there were something like 100 different pension schemes. And if it was possible to aggregate them and then develop much stronger expertise and leadership in, in, in industrial investment. That would help enormously. On this issue of long-termism and short-termism, short it's very important to separate out turnover from long-term state policy and, thirdly, the, the location of the state. 
Uh, we have exceptionally high ministerial and official turnover in this country, which, as it happens, I think is bad. I'm afraid part of it is caused by governmental failure. We've had twice as many prime ministers in the last uh, 60 years as, 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 as Germany. The present Chancellor of Germany has outlived four British prime ministers, and I'm afraid that's the function of one very simple fact. Our prime ministers have failed, theirs have succeeded, and, and failure leads to very high turnover. Part of the problem, though, is the instability of our state policy, and that, I'm afraid, is also relating to failure. If you're running a chronically failing national policy, that will also accelerate the turnover of ministers and officials. It would help if we had competent ministers following sensible long-term policies. We have incompetent ministers following insane long-term policies, like Brexit, and I'm afraid that's at the root of our problem. The third issue, though, is the location of the state. In England, and I say England deliberately, it's not the case, of course, in, in the rest of the United Kingdom. In England, we have a more centralised state and more uh, uh, centralised both in terms of the location of spending but also the loca location of legislative and administrative decisions than any other nation of our size in the world and much larger than any other European countries. So if you take Germany, for example, Germany has 16 lender federal states with their own Prime Ministers, industrial um, uh, policy directorates, officials who are busy working with investors, companies on inward investment and, uh, and skills and so on. And that leads to uh, much uh, stronger rapport between decision makers and business and other leaders. It also leads to more controlled experimentation than we have in this country. So our system of government is not just the stability of our, of our executive machine, but our system of government is woefully inadequate. And I'm afraid all of these, I know we're not supposed to mention Brexit, but all of these weaknesses are coming together in Brexit, which is largely a fruit of this long-term failure. Gerard. Yeah, sure. Thank you. So on, um, on pensions, so I would say that in the UK we don't have really, really good analysts who really understand technology in the city, who really can evaluate a software business and its future potential. That kind of understanding and education and sophistication is very high in New York. Um, so you ask, you know, what other countries are doing about that. You need to invest in that. You need to really understand that actually a company that's making a loss year on year for three years doesn't mean it's a bad business. It has huge, huge potential. But how you analyze that business will say a lot about whether you will encourage people around you to invest in it or not. Um, so that's, that's one. I think you know, there needs to be better analysts in the city. Um, and also, how do you get access to growth capital? So this year... Um, stands to be another record year in investment in the UK for technology companies. Um, and last year was another record year. Um, more money went into UK tech than in Germany, France, and Sweden put together, over six billion pounds. We've already reached that in July of this year. And a lot of that money is coming from Asia and the US, and they're coming from pension funds. And so the question, mark, the question I have is like, why can't the UK do the same. Why is it that it's, it's, foreign, it's always foreign money that takes the risk initially? So I think it comes back to understanding our businesses a lot better in the UK and really trusting them that they know what the future holds for this country. So I think backing those companies is really important. 
Um, on universities, um, I would say, look, it's a, universities are not playgrounds for entrepreneurship at the moment. They could be, but entrepreneurship isn't their business model. Their business model is education. And so how do you start to fuse entrepreneurialism with education together? And that's when it starts with spaces. So if you look at Manchester Metropolitan University, they have a space where investors, corporates, and professors come and talk about what future technologies look like. And so that collaboration, that collaborative mentality and how you bring people from different constituencies together to work together, even starting with just a space that have certain events and, and thoughts, starts the sort of the, 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 the thinking around how universities should not really be managing patents, in my opinion. They should be thinking about how they encourage PhD students to start great companies and perhaps go as far as actually investing in those people at a very early stage, like they do at Stanford University. So those are two things that I think I wanted to pick up on. And there was one other thing I wanted to pick up on was that UK Tech right now employs over 2.1 million people. That's over twice the financial services industry that employs a million people. And yes, uh, there are different types of jobs in that space, but that was about, that's an increase of about 500,000 jobs over the last 10 years. That is a staggering amount of jobs that have been created from the technology industry. So um, I've never seen, by the way, and this is not just in London, but actually in key cities like Manchester, Edinburgh, Belfast, right across the country. And they're actually applying all sorts of technologies that we keep talking about as if they're arriving or about to arrive when they're already here. So if you look at companies that are analyzing blood cells to predict cancer or analyzing um, data to predict climate change events, these are companies that exist right across this country right now and they're employing people coming out of university or having done an apprenticeship or even colleges of further education. Some of the best software engineers didn't even go to university. They are self-taught. People are learning these skills online via YouTube. And that's what we hear constantly, people from Wales telling me that some of their best engineers weren't the people that went to university necessarily. So it's like, how do we get ready for the fact that our old models of education need to now transform themselves for a changing revolution. It's already here, it's already happening. Thank you. So I wonder if um, the panel would follow, the rest of the panel would follow Kevin in being a bit more concrete about the uh, areas of industrial growth, the specific sectors or products, the stuff that's actually going to be made and bring this conversation a bit closer down to earth. And then on the question of the role of the state, I wonder if I could bring out what I think is a disagreement um, on the specific role of the state. Is it just in classical uh, sort of World Bank style that the state should put the correct institutions in place and the incentives and infrastructure and so on and then get out of the way of private capital? Or must the state actually be much more interventionist, um, picking winners, planning, as we see in places like China, for example, which, and that kind of industrial policy and state aid would certainly not be compatible with um, European Union membership, I think. There was a real need for the first industrial revolution because there were extremely inefficient industrial systems. I'm not very clear about the driver for this next one. Why do we need another one? Will it be because of another space race, um, population explosion? 
I haven't actually heard anything about space apart from Kevin, so that's quite uh, impressive. Thanks for that, Kevin. Um, so I'm just wondering, what do you think is going to be the driver which will just force it to happen as opposed to government intervening, which I don't think the government did in the first Industrial Revolution? I think that's a very, good, very important question. Um, I'd like to spend a bit of time on, on what the drivers are, because obviously as well, there are a lot of people who now say that we've already got enough stuff and we don't really need a lot more. Why, why do we, what is the thing that's driving it? And I'm also a bit suspicious of the, the narrative which is kind of developed here, which is, it goes something like, I'm not pinning this on anybody, but political weakness leads to state incoherence, leads to lack of investment, and so on and so on. It seems to take the subjective factor out of this, you know, the entrepreneurial nature of, uh, of most innovative, um, uh, and most innovations. Anyway, um, Phil. When listening to, uh, thanks to the whole panel, very interesting points, but just comparing what Hillary said and what Gerard said um, reminded me of another in useful insight from uh, Andy Haldane, where he says that there's this paradox. We seem to be living in, a, in an era of innovation as well as being in an era of stagnation. And how can that be? And, you know, you'll often hear people say, but, you know, the, the revolution's already here. We have all these great technologies. They have been invented. We've got AI. We've got all these things. And yet with apologies to uh, my colleague here, yet we do have you know, flat productivity, which to me means, as Kevin stressed, flat living standards or you know, wages going nowhere and a lot of rubbish jobs out there. So you have this coexistence of these two things that you know, we don't have to invent the technologies, as you know, we can invent more, great, but they're not being applied across the economy. We don't have the clusters. And uh, I think the, the answer to that paradox, not one I necessarily developed, but the OECD has, has stressed it, is that there is a problem what they call diffusion. There is a problem that we have all these things being developed by entrepreneurs and others in the sort of top 2% of the economy, but those new ideas, those new inventions, those new technologies are not being diffused, are not being spread or taken up by the rest of the economy. And that's how you can have these coexistence of stagnation wages and all these great ideas and interesting things happening on the, on the, on the tech front. So, you know, I would be interested in the, in the uh, thoughts of the panel as to how we can fix that problem of diffusion. My suggestion would be to think about what Kevin was saying when he talked about the Manhattan Project, that you need, and, uh, and I think Andrew was talking about it as well, and since you need sort of a mission-orientated growth plan, but we should remember that the Manhattan Project only happened because there was a huge dislocation going on of the Second World War. And in fact, the whole, to me, the whole Third Industrial Revolution only happened because there was that forced change in society. So it seems we need a big bang like that. Excuse the, uh, excuse the uh, Not term. too big a bang. <laughs> yes, gentlemen here. Um, I, th I think there is a cultural problem, uh, a cultural barrier to all of this, which is... Um, I think we lack the imagination. I don't think we are future-oriented as a society at all. I think, if anything, we are concentrating on what we have. We are stuck in the present, and we believe that the resources that we have now is all we have, that we should be preserving rather than inventing, creating new things. You know, I'd take you back to the, the 20s and the 30s, where you had universities set up in America like Princeton, where they had institutes that were devoted towards pure research. 
Um, I don't know if you read that book, The Usefulness of, Useful, of, of Useless Knowledge, which came out of Princeton. Uh, you know, people like Einstein, who were not tied to business-oriented research projects. They, we needed to know what the outcomes were. But which, in fact, through their breakthroughs, created the trillion-dollar industries that we enjoy today. Digitization, computer, computing, quantum, quantum theory, all of that. Without that, we wouldn't have that today. The problem, in other words, what I'm saying is that we need a leap in imagination. If we want to have a, another industrial revolution, we have to break out of this cultural block that we've kind of blocked, boxed ourselves into, where we are risk-averse, where we don't trust people. In fact, if anything that's coming out of government now is this greater technocrat te technocratic managerialism, where we now have to defer to experts because the experts know everything. But if anybody knows anything about expertise, you know that expertise only develops in relation to people, to solving problems in society. So unless we have that ambition, I can't see that any of this discussion goes anywhere because it just becomes a circular discussion about where do we, are we blaming government, Brexit, politics, is it, is it a lack of imagination, whatever. We're in a, 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 a spiral where we're gonna go nowhere. So I think, how you address that issue, obviously it's a huge, huge question, but it seems to me that one of the greatest things we should be doing is having a discussion about risk, about what it takes to not be afraid of new knowledge, of pushing the boundaries, of not accepting the limits that we seem to be placing upon ourselves, and, and, and just having a little more ambition and vision about where we could go. Um, hi there. I just wanted to respond to the point on diffusion, which I think is a really interesting one and in how you can have sort of the technology racing ahead, but business not really doing it. I think that comes back to the lack of investment. Uh, so as a case study example, work in the insurance industry is often one of the ones that is ripe for automation. People thinking that machine learning will effectively replace what we do. Um, I think lack of investment. I think lack of an understanding at a board level what the technology will actually bring and therefore the sort of the difference between the, the sort of the advanced technical nature actually plugging that into the commercial space seems to be something that people just aren't really willing to engage with. Um, and then the sort, of, the sort of technical leap in terms of the abilities that people need within organizations in order to uh, sort of adapt to that technology is another big barrier that we notice. So realistically, there, there is a skills gap there, but it's also how do you change higher levels of organizations rather than just getting a new talent and how do you really sort of I suppose lead the development, that's almost the kind of thing that we don't know how to do. So the technology's there, but actually what is the blueprint for adoption and changing the industries? And if people aren't willing to invest, then we're really just not getting anywhere. Yes, the woman here on the end of the room. Hi, my name is Michelle and I study behavior economics at LSA. So um, I just want to come back to the point of investing in sustainable energy. I, I think one of the speakers saying we're lacking the political will to you know, invest in sustainable energy. And I, my question is, do we have the will of the people? Because um, you know, in Germany, you used to build the tur um, loads of wind turbines near the residence area. And um, the behavioral economists actually found a very interesting psychological effect. It's called the nimble effect. In other words, it's called not in my backyard effect. 
So what it means is when you're conducting opinion polls, asking people if they want to support sustainable energy, if they are environmentalist, blah, 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 and they tend to say, yeah, I love environment. But when you're actually building wind turbines near their you know, backyard, and the, the suicide rate, um, rate actually rise, and uh, depressing rates actually rise, the happiness level dropped, and people starting to complaining loads, loads and loads of things. So what I mean is, is there an actual behavioral gap in terms of supporting the environment and sustainable energy? And if that's the case, and if we don't have the will of the people, and what's the point of investing sustainable energy anyway? And people don't want them to be in their backyard. You know what I mean? So that, that's my question anyway. Yes, gentleman here. Hi there. I just want to make two points, one around ambition, the other on, on innovation. So ambition. I think one other sector that we should be focusing on is healthcare. You know, worldwide is a seven trillion dollar industry, the biggest in the world. We are spending about well, next year we're spending about 160 billion on our own healthcare system. We're unique in having a national healthcare system, but it's pretty much knackered at the moment. And there are, we're standing at the dawn of the greatest transformations in medicine and technology that are going to land into healthcare. And at the moment, our approach is individual innovations thrown at a knackered system that can't accommodate it. We need thinking about how we do systems transformation at scale to provide a 21st century healthcare system. And no one's doing that thinking. Um, I say no one. We've just finished writing a report commissioned by the Royal Free Charity involving multiple people around the healthcare system to articulate what a 10 to 15 year vision should look like. Love to be able to share that with anyone who's interested. So point one. Point two, when it comes to things like uh, innovation, we've got to kind of unpack that a little bit. So I was very inspired by some work done by Clayton Christensen who's been looking at trying to unpack the types of innovation, sort of segmenting innovation that happens in the corporate world. And he came up with three sorts of innovation. One is the innovation which saves costs, which doesn't really drive any, any in, in terms of sort of new top line, but it's about saving costs, which ultimately ends up saving jobs or changing the nature of jobs to be part-time. So it's, it can improve performance, but it doesn't do anything for employment. The second biggest one is about just innovation that replenishes the current product line, so it's just updating products and services. The third type of innovation, which is disruptive or whole new innovation, is by far and away the smallest amount of innovation that happens in the corporate world. Reason being people's attitude to risk. It's much safer and easier to get a generated return if you save money or replenish your, pop, uh, your product line than it is to drive new radical new innovation that can drive the economy and drive new employment. And that comes down to a risk aversion supported by investors who want guaranteed returns and nervous CEOs and boards. So we've got to get, get to grips with that particular issue if we're going to drive innovation in, in the corporate world. And why it's secondarily really more important is that 85% of SMEs have these corporates as their route to market. So if these corporates are not doing bigger disruptive innovation, you basically cap the market for SMEs who are doing all this brilliant innovative stuff but have no route to market. So we've got to unlock that systemically, I think, to transform the performance of the economy. The gentleman over there. Well, I, I think the most important question has been yours, uh, man. I mean, why do we want such an industrial revolution uh, and a new one? And the short answer is Africa. Uh, if you read any green doctrines, if you read the World Economic Forum, 
if you read anything that in a mainstream position that talks about Africa, what is important for them? It's important to have energy access. What does that mean? It doesn't mean power stations. It certainly doesn't mean nuclear power stations. It does not mean the electrification of Africa. It means a light bulb in a mud heart. That's what they have in mind. The United Nations, the European Union, all of the green NGOs, that's what they want. They mustn't make the same mistakes as we made. Hillary Clinton pioneered that. I should think that's enough for most people in the audience. So the simple reason is we are becoming African in Britain because we're backward and because a lot of people don't live in places much bigger or better than mud huts. And the McKinsey doctrine, the financial services doctrine, the Quango doctrine from governments is that mobile finance can turn around Africa. That if we have a few electrons hooking up a buyer of wheat to a seller of wheat or whatever, that's the revolution we need in Africa and it's already happening. So there's nothing to worry about. No malnutrition, no continued mud huts, just a few electrons, a few regulations, a bit of mobile, that will solve it. The battle of ideas does not buy that doctrine and uh, it wants something better for Africa. It wants the very best for Africa. And no plan put forward by the conventional wisdom yet does that. But we will evolve one with your help. Any, any of the uh, speakers want to come back on anything at this point? Yep, Kevin. Yeah, I don't know if it's this round or the previous round of questions. Someone, someone asked about what can we do at a grassroots level rather than wait for government. Uh, and I'd like to link that with uh, an, another comment from the floor and, and something that I mentioned about the, this culture of, of pessimism and, and la lack of imagination. I, it's basically cool and sophisticated to be a pessimist. And you're, if you're an optimist, if you start talking about bold visions of the future, you're just you're perce generally perceived... Can to be you use a mic? Sorry. 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 You, you're generally perceived to be a bit wet behind the ears if you start talking about... Um, bold visions of the future. So I, I think one grassroots thing we can do is we can start creating um, a culture of optimism, a, a sophisticated culture of optimism where you can talk about the future um, and it doesn't entail sort of eco-doom. You know, that there, there are counter visions to that that we can start creating and start creating forums for and make optimism sophisticated again. Andrew? Uh, somebody mentioned sectors, and then you asked how it is on the parallel of the Manhattan Project, how can the state mobilise very big activities in peacetime? On sectors, we have a broad range of sectors in this country, and we've, got, we've mentioned healthcare, aerospace, automotive, pharmaceuticals, I could go through the education, is a huge sector in this country. Uh, we don't have a shortage of sectors in this country, they're just not strong, big, and deep enough. This is the issue. The, the, Always when you've got something that's working well, where you haven't got enough, you should want more. And what we should have, if you take healthcare, which you spoke very persuasively about, we should want a stronger, better, more international, more R&D based, all of those things, sector. We need the same in aerospace, we need the same in ph pharmaceuticals, we could go down the list. What should the activity of the state be, which isn't revolutionary, it's incremental, but cumulatively, of course, it has a revolutionary impact. It should be constantly to work with the leading edge reformers, investors, 
and the most successful entrepreneurs in those sectors to make it work, including the startup level. I completely agree that we need much more follow through from first degree to PhD to startups, all of those things, all of that's important. When it comes to new sectors, though, it, where it is clearly very difficult for the state to mobilise, we do have one, and this links um, very uh, strongly uh, to what we've been discussing uh, earlier, one big new sector, which is tackling the climate emergency. That is a kind of warlike situation. We have got to, in a really dramatic way, get to grips with carbon reduction and tackling the climate emergency. And that means a massive, and has to be, by its very nature, state-led, acceleration of policy and investment in green and clean energy. And I completely agree with everything that's been said on that. I don't necessarily agree with the component parts of it. I'm a former chair of the National Infrastructure Commission. It's always very important to unpack sort of high-falutine statements. Small modular reactors, I can assure you, are neither small nor modular. <laughs> when you actually start looking at them, there's no such thing as a modular factory, which is effectively what they are, built on the edge of an urban space. It obviously has to be very carefully designed and fitted in, and they are not small, which is the reason why no other country in the world has developed an industry of small modular reactors. I suspect, actually, we're talking about large nuclear reactors and need to build them much more effectively. I certainly don't think wind is the technology of the past. For goodness sake, wind prices have halved in the last 10 years. The offshore wind sector is accelerating at productivity rate faster than any other part of the energy sector at the moment. And whilst it's certainly true that building wind farms right next to where people live can have an effect on their on their, on their mental health, and you need to be careful about this. Large parts of this country, particularly when you go to rural Scotland and Wales, are largely uninhabited. But for acts of policy which have been mistaken, all to do with NIMBYs in southern England, the state, because we have this very centralised state, has banned local and regional governments from investing in onshore wind in those areas. So I'm not s signing up to a particular package within this thing marked Green Revolution, but there should be one. And we should have a kind of Royal Commission approach. The body I chair, the National Infrastructure Commission, was starting to look at these issues, trying to take a longer-term view, trying to build coalitions across parties, which you're starting to see with the language which we're getting about the Green New Deal and Green Technological Revolution. That, I think, is the most promising area where the state itself, by virtue of an international crisis, can lead and foster innovation. And in doing so, of course, what we should aim to do is to make this country in the manufacturing and R&D and, and technology and research side, we should seek to make ourselves a leader and not a follower. Hilary. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the comments that have been made about on, on risk. I should say that there's a session on risk at four o'clock in the pit theatre. Um, just on companies, because I think we're letting companies off the hook a bit here in terms of, you know, it's saying we need government to do all the heavy lifting. Because I do think that, that as well as government being short term, companies have become very short term in their attitude to investment. Uh, you know, finding companies who will uh, uh, make a commitment to their workforce in terms of training and career structures is really hard these days. Um, and I, and I, I think, you know, there's a, there's ordinary working people can exert um, some pressure in their workforce to, to, to push employers to do more, because I do think we let them off the hook quite a bit. Just to sort of really build on, on, on Andrew's points about the, the conditions for success, and the UK has more AI companies than any other European company, uh, any other European country, and there are many reasons for that. There is definitely uh, reasons that are, are policy-driven, but there's also, uh, I'll, I'll share a story with you. 
where uh, a company um, started a few years ago by three PhD students um, uh, was sold to Google um, for 400 million after about five years. And the actual um, founder and CEO of the company said uh, he was actually offered a higher offer by another company, but the deal was and the condition was that he would move to Silicon Valley. And he actually said, no, the vision for me and my company is that we will build a company here, we will continue to build it here, and I will accept another offer from another company called Google, because, and it was actually a lower paid offer. <laughs> um, and actually, as a result, he has created a magnet for AI engineers from all over the world to come and not only study here, but actually work here. And they've been flying AI engineers from the Valley to actually be here because some of the greatest uh, discoveries that are, are happening in AI are actually happening in this country. So it's kind of a combination of government policy for sure and institutions and uh, institutes, but also um, backing entrepreneurs who actually have a vision for how they see the world so that the next generation of entrepreneurs can say, well, if he, if he or she can do it here, so can we. And I think that takes ambition at all levels of, 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 of society. Uh, gentleman in the front row. Thank you. Uh, can you, yes. Um, if I can say something that I, I think might bring together um, comments from three of the panel and uh, the lady who was asking about the drivers. Um, I, I, I work in, uh, I'm a nuclear engineer um, working in um, research and uh, delivery of nuclear projects in, in Manchester. Um, what, one of the big drivers, I think, um, as Andrew Adonis was saying, is, is the, um, the, the, the real need to get to grips with um, delivering energy that's sustainable in the future. Um, you mentioned about, do we need much more stuff? Well, it's not about delivering more stuff. We're not going to be able to carry on having the stuff that we've got if we're not going to be able to deliver this energy sustainably. So a colleague of mine um, did a back-of-the-envelope calculation uh, this week, actually, on the amount of energy required in order to syn uh, synthesise kerosene to maintain the air fleet that we've got at the moment to maintain our level of commercial, international and, and internal flights. And it came out to about 33 gigawatts. So we'd need 33 gigawatts of electricity generation just to maintain our aircraft fleet. So to put that in context, that's 10 times um, the output of Hinkley Point C. Um, the, the, the problem we've got with things like Hinkley Point C and the reason why it's such a disaster is, is a financing issue. It's not really a technical issue. Um, the, in order to get um, a, a financing for such a risky enterprise as building a nuclear power station may not uh, get through, the, the interest rates are, are very, very high. And something that's such, such got a, a high um, capital investment up front, uh, that, that can really kill the project. So well over half of the amount of money that goes into the levelised cost of electricity for um, a large nuclear power station is the investment up front, which is one of the reasons why I think the small modular reactors are, um, have, have got a potential for the future. Um, on the topic of small modular reactors, the HTRPM is uh, the very first of the Generation 4 reactors, which is um, a modular reactor that's coming online in China uh, this year, depending on um, how accurate the Chinese predictions are. Um, but that's based on technology that was developed in this country um, from the 60s. And um, uh, there's an engineering company called DBD who are working very closely with the Chinese to deliver this project. But the Chinese are delivering stuff that's, that's technology that we developed in Britain 50 years ago. Um, and if they get these things online, I think they're very keen to work with us, particularly with the ONR, uh, sorry, the Office for Nuclear Regulation, because we can basically sanitise the um, 
uh, a new technology and basically say that it's, it's, it's safe for implementation elsewhere. Um, so I, I think what we need to do is to, to really, I, I love the idea of the Manhattan Project for, for, for energy, maybe, maybe the Apollo Project rather than Manhattan Project, it's probably got a better, um, better, better connotations for, for nuclear energy. But, but I, I think that the, um, uh, with regards to renewable energy, I, I think that uh, the future we need um, as, a, as a physicist from what I can understand about how the technical limitations are on delivering um, a, a massively expanded electricity grid. We do need renewables, fantastic, but there is going to be a, a physical limit on what we can realistically rely on renewables to do, um, mainly, mainly because of, of uh, issues regarding um, synchronous, what they call synch synchronous um, generation, which needs to come from something thermal. And so the CCC tends to agree, and they reckon that about 61% looks like to be the top end of what we can get from renewables, with the 39% we're going to need to get from something thermal, which is either coal, gas, biomass, or nuclear. So I, th I think we're going to need some nuclear in the future, but it, it will not be delivered with the current market model that we've got, because it's just too difficult to build them, because the investment's so high. I think I've spoken too long. Thanks. Yes, yeah, somebody once said that there were technical reasons solar power couldn't be relied on in February in this country. Yep. Uh, Nico McDonald, one of the co-authors of the Big Potatoes Manifesto. Um, just a note, Gerard, on DeepMind, it was bought by Google, and it's hard to think of any significant ICT companies in the UK which have managed to grow and flourish in the last 20 years without being bought. Um, maybe that says something. Um, earlier this year, in July, it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo uh, moon landings. Can anyone name the 50th anniversary that took place this week, arguably, even more significant? Anyone? First connection of the internet. Anyone heard of the internet? <laughs> I think it's important. Okay, that provoked almost no interest in the UK. One event uh, compared to the Apollo documentaries, uh, Twitter timelines, exhibitions, etc., etc. It seems that people in this country, leadership particularly, are not interested in large-scale innovation today. Most political leaders, if you ask them the difference between the web and the internet, could not tell you a fundamental difference, not least given the web was invented by a British-born scientist, albeit in Geneva. Uh, I think there's a really important issue of a lack of leadership in this country and a lack of real engagement and interest in innovation, R&D, and technology. And also, I think there's a challenge in research. Now, earlier this week, to celebrate the Internet's 50th anniversary, uh, Alan Kay, some people might know him, the pioneer of personal computing, uh, spoke about the research um, culture in the United States after the war, which we've talked about a little bit. Uh, and he talked about people like J.C.R. Licklider creating a magnetic north and then hiding it, finding researchers who didn't know what the goal was but would find a goal. And this relates back to what Hillary's talked about, about Blue Skies research. Uh, uh, Charles Hertzfeldt, who led the ARPA uh, uh, project in the United States, which has been referred to already by Andrew, uh, said to Bob Taylor, who led the Internet project, what do you want to do? In 15 minutes, uh, Taylor outlined his goal to create what became the ARPANET and then the Internet, and he was given a million dollars to do it, and for the first year there was no paperwork. Does that sound like any Innovate UK, Research Councils UK funding project that you have been involved in? Our friend Julian uh, working in the... Uh, uh, area of um, uh, eco ships and so on might not recognize that. 
Uh, the goodness of the results is, in the pro is the product of the goodness of the funders. We have an instrumental attitude to R&D and funding, particularly from government research in the UK. While we have that attitude, it's going to be a real problem for people who know what they're doing and are passionate to be able to create the great companies that Gerard has talked about. And I think that's a real challenge we need to address. Just one, perhaps. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to bring the uh, speakers back now for one minute. I just received a note from, uh, it's not signed, from somebody about the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. Who sent this up? Right, okay. So if, you, if you're interested in continuing this discussion with the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, which meets uh, once a month, I believe, something like that, then please see this gentleman afterwards. Right. Right, so in reverse order, um, beginning with Kevin, one minute, please. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think wind is um, a technology of the past, personally. I think it's irrational. Um, it's, you, all, you need to design a backup for it for, for still days. Um, you only get 20% out of its, 20, 30% out of its capacity. And to, re, to reach um, sort of decarbonisation um, kind of targets, you'd need to cover sort of an area the, the size of Wales with, 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 with wind, uh, with turbine, uh, with wind turbines. So I, I, I don't agree. I think that's, um, it's, 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 an, it's not only irrational, it's also just safe. It's, it's not as, um, as bold and as controversial as going for a big Apollo project to, to, to meet the needs with uh, nuclear energy. Thank you. Gerard. Uh, I'll just go back to the four key drivers. One is political leadership, two, infrastructure and ecosystems, two, capital, and four, uh, uh, talent and creative mindset. On that, we have published our own book, um, How to Scale a Startup in the UK, all written by 25 entrepreneurs who've backed or, or built 10 billion pounds worth of value, um, and it makes a change for all those American books that you get to read about entrepreneurship. But uh, we have been lucky enough to have worked with uh, 400 companies that have raised over $10 billion uh, in the last five years here in the UK. They're all British companies. <clears throat> Thank you. Hilary. I wanted to come back to a point I made that I expect to be controversial, but, but hasn't been, which is around just clearing away the dead wood. Because I think quite a lot of the contributions we've had from the floor are about there is a lot of entrepreneurial work going on out there, but it just gets ground down uh, by all this rubbish that we've got that needs clearing away. So we're going to build an Apollo project. Let's do it uh, on, on the uh, ruins uh, of an industry that really shouldn't be there anymore. Andrew. I, I love the idea of an Apollo project. I think that's one of the, 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 perhaps the big takeaway from this, uh, uh, from, from this forum this afternoon. But I don't think it should just be limited to nuclear. It should be a response, a state-led, big picture, but with a plan, response to the climate emergency. And because it's, it's not, not either or here. We need more wind. We need more solar. We need more nuclear. We need, all, we need a proper plan for going green in a really big way, tackling the climate emergency, eliminating carbon much faster than is currently planned, and have an industrial policy on the back of it. And calling it the Apollo project, I think, is great. And then it needs a political champion. It needs really serious uh, hearts and minds job. It needs to motivate society in, in a big way. And I think we could make that a big task of the next generation. And it all started here at the Barbican on a, on a, on a, on a gloomy Sunday afternoon when we were contemplating the horrors of Brexit. <laughs> Thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. To hear more of our podcasts and subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast. Thank you.